thank you. That's so flattering. I appreciate that. Warm welcome. It's so good to um, have the opportunity this morning to speak, and um, I just want to echo Pastor John's welcome to those of you who are um, new this morning, which I see a lot of unfamiliar faces. It's really good to see you. Um, I apologize. You're here on a day where it's very different from normal, and I'll just let you know up front, if you like today, come back next week because it'll be way better. So (laughs) hang with us, I promise. But most of you were probably expecting to see Pastor Dennis this morning when you came in, and we look nothing alike. I apologize for that. I have way bigger muscles than he does, and um, my hair is longer. Um, he can't help that, though. So um, anyway, but I, I appreciate the opportunity that, that I have this morning to kind of fill in for him and um, continue to pray for them. They're in Nicaragua. Actually, today is kind of their fun day, I believe. Um, the team is there just kind of doing some Stuff They've been serving really hard all week, and if you keep up with them on social media at all, um, it's been really encouraging to see everything that's been accomplished the last several days as they've been there. Um, they travel back tomorrow, so if you think about it, tomorrow be praying for them, um, that they just have safe travels and make it back, and we'll all get to celebrate later in the week with them. So um, <clears throat> I want to talk this morning um, kind of... Uh, about something that for some of you may be a little bit old news. Um, if you remember and you've kind of walked with me through this process, two years ago my dad passed away from uh, cancer. And uh, there were a lot of you that prayed along with me and my family, and I appreciate those prayers. And um, it's been two years now, which is kind of hard to believe, but um, two years ago when he passed away, I, I really felt like I, I needed to just kind of share this story. But Up to this point, I honestly don't think I could have done that, and um, so bear with me if any of these details are kind of old hat for you. Um, That's my dad. Thanks, Cole, for putting that up there. Um, I see all of you, or not all of you, but some of you um, already kind of thinking, so that's your dad, huh? Like, um, okay, maybe not the eyes, the nose, no, probably no. Well, let's, uh, so that's dad, huh? Well, that's my stepdad. Um, but for me, he's been dad. He's been there as long as I can remember. So all of my life that, um, all of my life that, that I was aware enough of what was going on in the world, this was dad to me. And it's kind of a neat story the way he and my mom met. They were actually, um, childhood sweethearts. Their families knew each other, um, through, through this, uh, great uncle and a great uncle of mine. It was my, my dad's uncle actually, um. Uh, He was a family friend of my mom's in St. Louis City. My dad grew up um, in Cherryville, Missouri. Has anybody ever even heard of Cherryville? You have? Bless you. Cherryville, Cherryville's a very, very small town, and back then it was a longer drive. It's still a long drive from St. Louis to Cherryville, but their families knew each other, so they got together from time to time, and my mom and my dad had a thing for each other when they were young, and um, it's kind of cool the way... Um, their lives were, were mingled together from a very early age. Um, but through a different series of events, obviously you can tell by this picture, my dad was an outdoorsman. He loved to hunt and fish and, and raised us all the right way, which was to do that. And um, anyway, through a hunting trip kind of gone wrong, way back before cell phones, way before the ability to, to make instant contact with anybody, he stood my mom up on a date. And it was um, kind of a really unfortunate thing because after that, he left, moved away to college, and, and shortly after, my mom did the same thing. 
they just lost touch. They parted ways. Both of them um, met different people. They got married to different people, and they both started families. And unfortunately, in, um, in, in most cases, I, I kind of think of it as a good thing, but um, their spouses, both of them, left, and they found themselves single and back together in the St. Louis area. That same uncle that matched them up when, when they were young called my dad and said, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but Marsha Wright is back in St. Louis, and she doesn't have a husband anymore. And um, my mom, you'd have to know her. She's the kind of person who is just quiet and meek, and um, she would never have thought of dating anyone. Um, <clears throat> but she had three boys, myself being the youngest, and um, was on the phone with a good friend, and, and her friend was encouraging her, you need to find somebody to raise those boys, you need to get out there and find a man. And, and my mom told her, she's like, I am not going to date anybody. If God wants that for these boys, he'll send somebody along. And I kid you not, she hung up the phone. And when she did that, the phone rang again. She picked it up and she's like, Marsha, this is Paul Sanders. I don't know if you remember me. And that was it. Um, And literally within that year, it was seven months later, they got married. And um, our families were blended. I'm now the youngest of six. And we all grew up together. And it's been an incredible life. I will say that. Um, You know, blended families, they come often with struggles. They're... they're, um, difficult things involved in that. For me, it's been a blessing. And um, for those of you who kind of walk through that every day and you feel the the tension of that, I understand what you're going through. And um, I just encourage you to give it to the Lord and and allow him to use that situation. Um, But anyway, um, just to kind of retrace a few of these steps, I think it's important. Um, Just a quick disclaimer. This is not a sermon, and I apologize up front. For those of you who came and and wanted a sermon, you're not going to get it this morning, Um, and I I really am sorry about that. I I wrestled all week long with how to turn this into, um, you know, pulling a scripture out about my dad, maybe, and making all these clever applications, and it it just didn't pan out for me. And so you're going to have to bear with me, and maybe you can find a sermon online this afternoon, but I'm just going to tell you my story, and so... I want to encourage you to stick with me through this, but um, my dad died two years ago, but if you rewind a little bit before that, um, the first indication that he had anything going on with him, um, he had this this kind of painful spot on the back of his leg, and um, it was on the back of this left knee over here, and my dad's the kind of guy that most of the time just ignores pain and, and just kind of keeps going, just does whatever he needs to do to get by, and Noticed over time, it got more and more painful, and it eventually got to the point where he could feel something on the back of his leg. And so he would um, kind of pay attention to this because he couldn't ignore it. He, he tried several different things to put ice on it, put heat on it, do whatever he could, and it, it didn't, didn't seem to manage the pain. And so I grew up in this small town, which is where my parents were still living, St. Clair, Missouri. And um, in a small town, if any of you grew up that way, there's one doctor and you go to that doctor for anything you need, okay, whether you got, you know, something wrong with your fingernail, or you've got the flu, or um, you need advice in your marriage, whatever it is, you go to this doctor, and, and they kind of help you uh, pick up the pieces and do whatever they need to do, and, and so he went to his local doctor, and, and this guy 
eventually diagnosed it as a baker's cyst. And, um, you know, it just didn't really mean, didn't, dad didn't care what it was necessarily. He just wanted the pain to go away. And so basically he said, what we can do is give you a cortisone shot and it'll kind of help you out with some of the pain and, and, and maybe this thing will just go away on its own. So he did that. He gave him a shot and it did. It helped quite a bit. Dad was able to get around and do what he needed to do, and um, that lasted for a little while, and then he noticed that not only did the, the pain come back, but, but the tumor, at the time he didn't know it was a tumor, but again, this got larger in the back of his leg. Um, this process went on for a while, kind of back and forth, doctor work, doctor work, doctor work, and he was getting shots um, more and more frequently, and he was actually getting to the point where he was just putting them in his hip and kind of numbing everything from there down. And, um, and dad was also getting to the point where he couldn't hardly even walk. You know, this tumor was getting so large on, on the back of his leg, he just couldn't even function properly. Um, so eventually, after this went on for, for quite a while, um, his doctor, thankfully, kind of put two and two together and, and said, I think we need to send you on somewhere else and have this looked at again. I think this may not be a, a cyst. This, you might have something else going on. Now, for most of us, we probably wouldn't let something like that go on that long. Um, you'd probably realize a little earlier in the game what, what was up with that. Um, but, but for dad, that's just not the way he was raised. Like I said, he grew up in Cherryville, Missouri. And, and um, for my dad, he was raised dirt poor, and I mean literally dirt poor, um, and most of us can't identify with that. Dirt poor to us is like we got to cut back to two meals out a week instead of three, or we've got to uh, dial back the satellite package, things like that. His case truly was dirt poor. He was um, second in line of seven kids. Um, he was the eldest son, and, and they were raised in a one-room house. And this was, my dad was, was born in 1946, so we're not talking like 1800s or something. This was, this was far enough along, they should have had more, okay? But he was raised literally in a one-room house, and go figure for a second, they had seven kids. I don't know how that works exactly, but um, they had one, uh, one room, and in the middle of this little house, there was the uh, cook stove that heated the house, and they also cooked on it. There was no electricity, no running water. And my dad did not own his own toothbrush until he went to college. It's true, I kid you not, if you went and dug his grave up right now, you'd find most of his bones and about a half a dozen teeth. So he, he did not have much at all. He, he grew up very, very dirt poor, and um, his dad built houses. I don't know if he wasn't any good at it or if there just were no houses around to build, but he didn't make much money doing this. And so as early on as my dad could possibly help, he was working with his dad. Now, his dad, I, um, I did meet him when I was younger, and I spent some time with him. Ironically, he passed of cancer when I was still um, a young man, and um, I didn't have a whole lot of interaction with him, but the things that I remember about him were definitely true and in, in line with the stories that my dad told me about his upbringing. He was very short-tempered, um, just not a very patient person. He was always focused on his task. And so he would work really, really hard and expect that of everyone else around him. And um, my dad, just to kind of illustrate the story a little bit, was uh, working on a house. Um, 
they had basically framed the thing out, and they, were, they had a roof on it, and they were passing a, a gas line from the roof all the way down through. My, my grandpa was up on the roof. My dad was down on the next floor, and he, uh, my grandpa was, was up on the roof with this gas pipe, and he's yelling at my dad, come on, son, I'm ready to put this thing through. My dad's down on this next floor, subfloor on his hands and knees like this, trying to get some things together. I have no idea exactly, and he can't remember exactly what he was trying to do, but it wasn't fast enough for my grandpa, so he dropped the pipe through, hoping my dad would just get it and, and move on. Well, his hand was like this down on the ground, and the pipe comes through right on the subfloor on top of that pinky and just whoosh, chopped it right off. And it was right at this knuckle right here. And my grandpa, of course, was aggravated with him, but took him. They wrapped it up. They did their token thing, which back then, um, and I guess this was just given what they had. They soaked it in kerosene, which I guess is like hillbilly peroxide or something. Um, <laughs> But they soaked it in kerosene, and my dad had to go back to work. Um, I suppose this was just a way of life. You know, it's just the way it was. I remember, you know, one of the memories that I did have of my grandpa. Um, he had, I mean, he just had these huge, massive, rough hands. He wasn't a huge guy, but that's just the way his hands were. And it was probably just from working so hard his whole life. But, but this thumb right here, I remember it was so weird looking. The thumb was all intact, but the, the fingernail looked almost like a lobster claw, like this. And my dad tells me the story of them splitting wood. You know, again, they had to cook that way, and they had to heat their home that way. But he was splitting wood, and for whatever reason, this, you know, it was just cut wrong. This, this piece that he was trying to split wouldn't stand up on its own. He had the uh, splitting ball in his own hand, holding it up, trying probably too many things at once, trying to hold it up brought the splitting mall down on his thumb and split his thumb long ways, literally kind of like a lobster claw. It was just, as, as I remember, it was about halfway down his thumb. And um, my dad said he did the same exact thing, wrapped it up, soaked it in kerosene, and went back to work. You know, it's just the way that he was raised. And so my dad, naturally, being raised that way, he didn't really stray from that later on in life. When his legs started hurting, it's just like, I got to do something just to get back to work. He wasn't thinking, I need to diagnose this problem and figure out what's going on with me. It was like, I can't deal with this pain because I have work to do. So that's why this process went on so long. And, and by the time um, he made it to the doctors in St. Louis, um, they had said, we know for sure this is a tumor. We don't exactly know what it is at this point, but they had said, we know that we can't remove this tumor. Um, there's no way. It's so, it's so invasive at this point. It was completely wrapped around everything internally in the back of his knee. They said it's approximately the size of a grapefruit, and we cannot remove it, and we're going to have to take your leg. And um, that was, at, at this point, it's been four years ago because it was two years before um, he passed away that, that this we were at this stage in the game. And so... My mom and my dad were devastated because they said, we need to do this immediately. Like, they wanted him to go ahead and put a date on the schedule um, for the following week to have his leg amputated. They were going to go just above the knee. And um, through a series of phone calls, um, they decided, as they kind of checked around all throughout the country, what, what can be done. They um, <clears throat> got a hold of some doctors at MD Anderson in Texas. This is in Houston. Um, some of you may be familiar with them. It's, it's a great hospital. They do a lot of um, 
research and treatment there. And um, anyway, my parents were able to get in a, um, for, for an appointment there at MD Anderson. And as I remember, that was about midweek. They, they had an appointment to see a doctor that coming week on Monday. So um, all of us are devastated thinking, you know, dad's got to dad's got to have his leg amputated and um, not really sure what's going on, but obviously that's pretty serious. So um, throughout the course of that time, um, they had done some, some, some more scans there in, in St. Louis that we just actually hadn't seen the results of yet. When we got that news, kind of all my siblings, as, as much as we could, we all came together early that weekend, and, and it also happened to be one of my niece's birthdays. And so we've, we were all together there in St. Louis, and, and I never forget going with my dad, actually, to pick up the results of all those scans they had done. Um, he was in so much pain. You know, we walked in the hospital together, sat there, and, and he was, compared to the, the, the strong, tough guy that I knew, it was so hard to see him that way because... He limped everywhere. His color was crazy. It was sorry. It was really hard, essentially, knowing that you're kind of watching him die. And so, um. You know, we had this fun weekend planned as a family to celebrate this niece's first birthday. And um, I'll never remember or never forget when he came out of the hospital with the doctor there. It was just one of my uncles and myself and one of my brothers. Um, You know, he had this envelope and he walked out kind of quiet and we went to the the vehicle together and loaded up. And um, he passed the envelope and we started looking at this. And it just showed that there was cancer throughout his whole body. He had tumors pretty much everywhere. And um, at that point, you know, the good news was he was, he was headed somewhere else um, that really specialized in what he was dealing with. Um, but for me... Um, even though I think my dad had a lot of hope in that situation, that was kind of the beginning of my grieving process. And um, it's kind of like I knew on that car ride, this is it. Um, Which is not something I was prepared for. You know, my early 30s, to see my dad die. So, anyway, um, there's a really bright side to all of this, I promise. Um, They were able, um, throughout that next weekend, to make it to MD Anderson. And when they got there, there was a doctor there that, um, that specialized, thank you, 
a doctor there that specialized in a particular type of cancer that he had, which was B-cell lymphoma. And um, it is, like I said, a lot of <clears throat> rapid-growing tumors. And um, the difficulty with that is that, you know, a lot of times a tumor can, can be extracted. But these tumors were actually like liquid tumors. They were a, a mass that was contained, but they were liquid. So to go in and, and, and get that is just impossible because it's like, you know, trying to pull out a, a, a clump of, of oil from a bucket of water or something. I mean, it's, it's, it was kind of that tricky. And, and so in order to treat these, they couldn't cut them open and take them out. They had to figure out some other way, which, of course, was, you know, like many other types of cancer, is, is uh, chemotherapy and radiation. Um, but they determined when, when he arrived there in, in Texas that he was in stage four, it had made it to his bone marrow, and um, I mean, my dad was almost lifeless by the time they got there. He he um, he couldn't walk himself in. I mean, they they wheeled him in. Um, he wasn't he wasn't even fully conscious all the time. My mom talks about how he um, he he couldn't hold a conversation because his body was just so ravaged by all of these tumors. Um, however. Through the wisdom of these doctors and all these treatments and um, uh, everything that they were able to do to him, he was able to live two more years. Um, He went through lots of chemo, lots of radiation. He actually went through a stem cell transplant. Um, At one point, they released him. This was about a year into the process. Um, They released him and said... um, you are, I'm trying to remember all the percentages at this point, but they, they, they said, you know, we're not, we're not going to release you and say you're in, um, in remission because, um, they, I, maybe they knew more than we knew at that point, but they just weren't quite prepared to say this. This was after his stem cell transplant, but they let him go home and they said, um, at that point, they wanted him back um, in, in Texas quite a bit, but, but they um, allowed him to go home, and it was like a three-month period, if I'm remembering right. Um, and so, um, anyway, we celebrated, of course. We're like, wow, this is incredible. You know, such a turn from a year ago, and my family has this tradition of a uh, fishing derby that we do, the grandpa's fishing derby. We do it every year, and it just so happened that, that dad had come home right about that time. We did the fishing derby. Everybody's happy and excited and everything. Well, dad went back for his um, follow-up appointment. And, of course, they're at that point saying, we're really sorry, but the cancer's back. And you're going to have to stick around. And we're going to have to do this, this, and this. And they um, thankfully qualified for a couple of different um, clinical trials that, again, just did a truly a miracle on on the particular cancer that he had. I mean, it just in theory we thought it was totally wiping it out. Um, he would he would kind of go back and forth, bouncing through different different phases of of health essentially. Um, but ultimately, his cancer just grew so quickly that that the doctors couldn't keep up with it. And so um, two years ago. Just before he passed away, um, he passed away actually in, in um, February 9th of, of 2015, and um, just before Christmas that year was when they finally 
said, you know, I'm sorry, Paul, but there's really nothing else we can do for you, and um, you need to go home and enjoy your family. Um, at that point, um, we, we essentially spent all the time we could, you know, and we walked through that process with him. Um, really, really so thankful that we were able to be there with him as he passed. Um, even though it's hard losing my dad, and, um, you know, it really, really sucks, I don't have any regrets in this process. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but, um, you know, God is, God is faithful. He's a very faithful God. And, um, many times I, I think about this situation and how terrible it is and how we prayed over and over for God to heal my dad. And we had a couple extra years in the process, but he wasn't healed. He passed away. And, um, Sometimes I think, you know, why, why didn't you heal him, Lord? But I always come back around to the fact that God is faithful. And even though ultimately my dad lost his life, there were lots of miracles in that process. And not just his cancer story, but in our lives in general. I'm thankful that, that God brought him into my life to be my dad when I didn't have a dad. I'm thankful that he was the husband that he was to my mom. He was that dad to so many other people. To my wife who grew up without a, a great father figure. He served that role in her life. And there are lots of miracles. You know, I think, I was thinking this week over and over about the story of Abraham when, when God asked him to sacrifice his son. Obviously, most of us can, can think about the horror involved in, in that process, how terrible that would be. And, um, the fact that God provided a miracle, essentially, in the end. We know the end of the story, it turns out, you know, he didn't have to sacrifice his son. But we read the story, and, and we think of the story the way we're taught in, in, in our childhood, growing up in Sunday school. And, you know, here's, here's Abraham about to sacrifice and God says, don't lay a hand on that child. And, and then sure enough, you know, he looks 10 feet away and there just so happens to be a ram right there caught up in the brush. And I, I doubt that it happened just like that. And I'm not saying scripture is not true, but, but that's the way we envision it, you know, is that, that just from here to that front row, a ram happened to be there with his horns kind of caught up. I mean, it reads that way, but, but, but can't you imagine that if that ram had been there the whole time, he probably would have noticed it, right? I mean, it's, it's probably not like it just snuck up on him. Um, I imagine it, it was probably a little bit different than the way we read it, the way we remember it. But the premise holds true that 
in the midst of all of that turmoil, that the miracle was actually there. God provided. He, he truly did. And Abraham had to find that miracle. The Lord provided, and, and um, Abraham just had to see it, essentially. And I think that all of the prayers that were voiced for my dad, not one, even though it would seem that they went unanswered, not one was unheard. And I think that God continues to provide over and over and over for each of us. And when you go through tough situations and you pray to the Lord, and ultimately it doesn't turn out the way you think it's going to, we have to remember that it's not that God has, has not answered our prayers. It's not that God has not provided. It's not that there's no miracle, but often we have to find that miracle. We're not just creating things to make God look great. It's, it's just that sometimes we fail to look and to see the things that God has placed in our path or placed around us. But as we search for God and as we continue to be faithful and seek him and, and, and claim him as Lord in our life, those things will be there. And we will find them along the way. And so as I sit and reflect on this, I, I, these things are a little disjointed. But, but I want to just talk about a couple things as I kind of wrap up this morning. First list is some things that my dad taught me. Um, and then secondly... I'll talk a little bit more about just a few of the things that I've learned just through losing him. But, but my dad, he was joyful. Anybody who knew him know, knew that he was like sincerely one of the happiest guys on earth. Um, he would wake me up on Sundays. Saturdays, he'd wake me up to work. Sundays, he would wake me up for church. Um, throughout the week, he was gone long before I ever got up, but... Sundays he would come in, it was the same every week. He'd go and make his rounds through, and I was the youngest, so I, he came in my room last, and he would turn on the light, which I hated, um, and then he'd, he'd stand over. We, we had this home that he built himself um, kind of in the evenings after um, he would work. He'd come and work on the house, and um, he built this house. It's the house I was raised in, and it's this big house out in the woods, log cabin and and it sat way up on this hill and kind of overlooked all of our property and later on in life it was cool because he had put in a lake here and a lake here and it was just an incredible view and so my dad would wake me up and then he'd go over to the window which is just a couple feet from my bed and he'd stand there boy son it's a beautiful day in the Ozarks and and he, he was he was just standing there talking and I'm aggravated of course because I'm a teenager and I'm like wanting to sleep, and he's got my light on, and he's enjoying life in general, you know, whistling, singing a song, and usually whatever song he was singing happened to be a song that we were singing that day at church, and um, um, he was just full of joy, and, and it was evident to anybody who knew him. The second thing is that he, he made others laugh. One of kind of his token phrases when we were kids is, was always, are we having fun yet? And we even bought him a shirt. We found the shirt that said, are we having fun yet? And um, he would 
wear that. I remember him wearing that on vacation all the time, but he would always ask us, are we having fun yet? And you know how it goes as a kid. We have squabbles all the time or whatever, and it never affected him. His joy was there, and he was going to have fun no matter what, and he always made others laugh too. And it kind of made us a little annoyed by it because everywhere we went, he had to tell everybody he saw a joke. And it's like, Dad, not everybody wants to hear your jokes. Matter of fact, later on in life, my mom and the rest of the family, we had a list of jokes that he was not allowed to tell anymore because he had told those jokes so many times. It's like, you know, every restaurant we went to, the server would walk up inevitably at some point and say, are you finished? And he'd say, no, but I got an uncle who's Scandinavian, you know, and it's like, <laughs> dad, I've heard that a thousand times. So that was banned. You know, he, he used to tell this joke about a duck who walked into a pharmacy and would ask for chapstick. And um, it's kind of a long one, so I won't tell the whole thing. But he would go in, or he would, he would tell people this joke over and over. And it's like, Dad, just stop already. Nobody wants to hear that joke. Um, but he wanted others to laugh along with him. It's really funny, this, this week I was just kind of digging through some old stuff, just kind of reminiscing, and, and um, I have a, a joke book that he put together. It's like 42 pages, I think it is, of all of his jokes that he's written down, because he wanted to pass these, he thought somebody would want them, and it's like, at the time, we're all thinking, nobody wants these jokes, Dad, you know, now it's like, this is awesome that I've got these, but he wanted other people to laugh along with him, and inevitably it happened one way or the other. Um, third thing is don't put too much value in your stuff and your things. In the end, it's all just stuff, you know, and I think that the fact that he grew up with nothing really helped him to appreciate that, that the important things in life are not the things you collect, although he was a hoarder. I, I kid you not, we had such an enormous process to clean up after him when he left this world. Um, but he just, he didn't really care about the stuff. He just he collected it because it was all useful, but it wasn't who he was. He didn't identify himself through, through his, his nice clothes or his fancy vehicles. or anything. None of that stuff mattered to him at all. I remember um, kind of going along with the, with the next point. My, my dad taught us to work hard. Um, and I'll never forget this one Christmas. My mom, coming from the city, and my dad growing up in the country, obviously there was always this rub because, you know, my mom grew up, her mom was, was um, a southern belle, truly. She was, she was raised in, in um, Louisiana and was, was taught etiquette from such a young age and, and taught all of her children that. My mom to this day is just like such a lady. And, um, you know, my dad later on in life swept her off, took her to the country, you know, threw her in a cabin basically with animal heads all over the place and took us all hunting and see you later, honey, baby. And um, so there was always this rub. My mom's always trying to get my dad to be a little more civilized and my dad's always, you know, just being who he was. And um, anyway, she would buy him these clothes every Christmas, which she eventually gave up on, but she would buy him these clothes. She wanted him to be dressed nice and it never worked. She, I remember one Christmas, she went out and she bought him this new outfit. She's a nice 
Ralph Lauren khakis and a Ralph Lauren shirt and new belt, new, um, it's like top siders back then, but you know, these leather shoes. And I mean, the whole thing from, from head to toe was all brand new. And she had spent a lot of money on this stuff, trying to get him to just present himself well. And, you know, not just as a redneck raised in the country. And, um, that was that was Christmas morning, and later on that day, we had plans to to go and see all of um, the family and everything. So we had opened all this stuff, and she told him, "I want you to wear that for later on today when we go and see the family." We were all getting ready to leave, and Dad had gotten ready long before us. It usually took him like five minutes for everything, shower included. And um, we're trying to track him down. Where's your, Mom's like, "Where's your dad at? Where's he at?" And we're like, "I have no idea." And so we're all kind of looking out the house, and we finally look out the back window, and we could see him way up in the woods, walking around. Um, he was, we, we burned our own trash, which is a mess when you have dogs. And so trash would get scattered all over through the woods, and dad was out there picking up trash from the burn pile to take it back. And of course, he's wearing that outfit that mom just, <laughs> just bought him and told him to put on. And he comes back to the house, and she's frustrated at this point, like, why are you walking through the woods picking up trash in those clothes? And he's like, you don't like my Polak clothes, baby? And I apologize. I know that's not politically correct at this point in life, but Polo, Polak, it was his whole joke again. He, anytime she would buy him those clothes, that's what he would call them. And it's like stuff meant nothing to him. It, it just really did not. He was going to work hard, and he was going to provide, and that's who he was. And we all loved him for it. But he was truly a man who loved God. He loved the Lord with all of his heart, and that was evident every day of his life. He loved God. He loved his family. Um, when I was in high school, my dad, he, he worked for Amron Electric, um, and essentially, um, at one point, it was Union Electric. It'd be like our equivalent to KCP&L, if you're, if you're not following me. So Amron Electric in St. Louis company that he worked for, he, he had kind of a, a confusing job, so I won't go into all those details, but at one point in life, he had to travel quite a bit. Um, he was working at a uh, power plant that was three hours away, <clears throat> but he had no desire to be away from home. He knew he had to work there, you know, and it was going to be like this long-term assignment, but he did not want to stay away from home, and so in the mornings, he would get up. He'd get up every day at 3 a.m., and he would spend a half an hour in prayer and reading the word, and then 3.30, he'd start getting ready, and 4 o'clock, he was on the road. Excuse me. So he was on the road. He'd drive from 4 o'clock to 7 a.m. when he started work, and then he'd work from 7 until either 3 or 4 whenever he finished his day, and then he would drive home because he did not want to sleep away from my mom and from his family, and he did that for year after year. And um, the company... They told him, Paul, we'll give you a hotel room. He knew that. It was actually there already. He just didn't want to be away from his family. He loved us so much. Probably wasn't me. He, he loved his family so much that he was going to do whatever it took to be at home. Um, but even in the midst of all that, he taught me, you've got to serve people. That was a priority of his. I was raised in a home. It was a small church that, that we attended. It was, um, I mean, not terribly small, but a church of like 200 people. And um, 
my mom and dad did a lot in the church. Um, my dad led the singing, and um, he was the Sunday school superintendent, which you know, it's kind of a position that's gone away these days, but back then it basically meant that he organized all of the Sunday school classes and got their curriculum together, and um, he would spend so much time doing that stuff, preparing for, for song services and, and um, preparing Sunday school, and then he would teach Sunday school too, and um, he loved it. That's the thing. It's like all of this stuff you would think would kind of weigh on a person, this amount of work to do in life, but he loved it. I mean, he found time for all of it, and he loved it very, very much, and he told us all the time to do these things, and I'm so thankful that that's who he was. But a couple things that I've, I've, I've really picked up, you know, aside from just who my dad was and, and, and what he passed along to me, but through his passing, I've learned that life rarely goes as planned. Um, Proverbs 16 says that um, uh, commit to the Lord all you do, you know, and he'll make your path straight. But it starts out this way. It says, um, it says to man belongs the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. And, um, you know, it's this, this concept that we can plan as much as we want. We can plan all day long. But in the end, not that we're God's little pawns, but it's probably not going to turn out the way that we sit down and write it on paper every time. Anybody else identify with that? My dad used to say all the time, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be bent out of shape. (laughs) And it's true over and over and over again that life rarely goes as planned. You know, I, I remember when it became evident that my dad was going to die, you know, Brittany and I, um, you know, having these conversations in the kitchen and just saying, ah, I wish my, my kids would have their grandpa in life. You know, you think about our, our son Ellis, he was still in his first year of life when my dad passed away home. He'll see pictures, you know, but he won't know him. He won't know how incredible of a guy this was, you know, and Vi and Tanner were a little older, and they have some memories, and I'm so thankful for that, but that's not what I planned. You know, I planned for them to, to grow up having and knowing their grandpa, and it's not going to happen. But in that, the second thing is that you've got to keep your heart soft. It'd be really, really easy to get bitter over this whole situation. And I have at different points in this grieving process. I've been angry and um, I try not to let that side show because I don't want to be that way. But sometimes it's a real fight when, when life comes at us to keep our heart right. And I just want to encourage you with that this morning that You might be going through loss. You might be going through separation. You might be going just through some tough times where you wish God had kind of put things differently in your life. You can't control every detail of the situation no matter how hard you try, but you can control your heart. And we've got to keep our hearts soft. The third thing is we're responsible for our own joy. Nobody else is going to make you joyful. There are people in our lives that can bring seasons of happiness. 
There are different things that can bring joy to us, that can help us be joyful, but ultimately, we are in control of our own joy. And you choose to be joyful or not, even in the midst of loss. And finally, this morning, I just want to communicate this last thing that I've, I've, I've learned kind of through losing dad, that we have to enjoy every moment. Live every moment as if it's the last. And I know that's cliche. I mean, we, we say that kind of thing all the time, and you read it on pretty pictures on Facebook, but it's true. You know, thankfully, we had these two years to kind of prepare for dad's death. But at any moment, for any one of us in this room, life could change like that. And I wonder this morning how you're living. Are you living as if today's it? You know, I mentioned earlier that I had no regrets in this relationship with my dad. And I honestly think that to this day, that's one of the things that I'm most thankful about. Like I said, my dad was around, even though he was my stepdad, he was around for the majority of my life that I can remember. And we had a great relationship. I think a a large part of that was due to the fact as a father that he reached to me. He reached out to me as his child. He included me in what he did. He took me hunting. He took me fishing. He taught me how to do those things. He took me along when he would work. You know, we would cut wood together, and I hated every minute of it when I was a kid. And now I'd love anything. You know, I I would give anything to have the chance to go out and split wood with dad again. I mean, it's incredible. But he made that extension to me. He brought me into what he was doing. And thankfully, this is no testament to me, but thankfully we had that kind of relationship where we participated in life together. And I can say that as he passed, I have no regrets in that relationship. I laid next to him as he passed away on the bed, and I thought, thank you, God. I wasn't thinking, man, I wish I would have done this, or I wish I would have done that. I thought, thanks, God. You know, and the crazy thing is, this story this morning is really not unique or uncommon. Probably even in this room, you could change the names and the dates, and, and, and this same story exists here, definitely throughout the world and throughout history. This same situation has happened over and over and over, and it's not unique, but the thing is, it's special to me. This is my story. And each one of us in this room this morning have a story. You've got a story. You've got a life that God has given you. And I heard a quote, actually this last week, somebody put it very articulately. They said, God doesn't use you in spite of who you are. He uses you because of who you are. Or another way is, he, would, he doesn't use you in spite of your story. He uses you because of your story. And this morning, 
I hope and pray that my story can be an encouragement for somebody. Maybe you're going through that tough time right now. Maybe this can be somehow be uplifting to you, even though it's been a little heavy. Or maybe it can be a reminder to some of you this morning of some things that, that we could sharpen up on. I know for sure for me, when I sit back, I think, you know, there are no regrets that I have in that relationship with my dad. But I have to remind myself that I'm raising kids too. You know, and this has to be an encouragement to me. That story is still still being written. And for all of us in this room this morning that have relationships, those stories are still being written. What are you doing to nurture those? Are you living in a way that if today was the end of it, you could honestly say, I'm thankful that I lived that way. I'm proud of that relationship. I'm happy that I have that relationship with my son or my daughter or my spouse or my parents. Where are you at this morning? Again, today, if, if, um, if you're visiting with us, let me assure you, our, this is not a normal Sunday. We usually have a little bit more fun than this. I know this has been really heavy. Um, please come back. <laughs> it will get better. I promise you, please come back. Um, and for those of you who have, have heard some of this stuff before, thanks for sticking with me and, and let me just kind of tell it again. I, I appreciate that. Um, we've got half a day left still. You know, it's only almost noon, and I don't want today to be a heavy day for you. It, it, it kind of feels that way for me sometimes when I, when I stop and think about it, and I have to remind myself this is a good thing. This is part of the process, and um, I want today to be a really good day. As, as you walk out of here, I want you to allow this to be something that causes you to make steps in the right direction if you're not there already. So if you'd stand with me this morning. that's it, that's all the longer I'm going to keep you, but I want to pray for you as you go this morning. God, I thank you so much that for every one of us in this room, we have an example. It it may not exist in, in, in somebody here on this earth, but God, we have an example in you as a heavenly father. We have a, a, a goal to aim for. And I pray today, God, that you would help us to make steps in the right direction. I pray, God, if there are people this morning that are struggling, that you'd bring encouragement to hearts. I pray that if there are broken relationships, that you'd bring healing. I pray, God, that if, if there are, are, um, are, are people who are struggling physically this morning, Lord, they, they need a touch from you uh, because of some sickness, Lord. I pray that you would make amends there as well, God, that you bring healing to bodies. God, whatever the need, may you help us to honor you with the way that we're living, to go find that miracle. Lord, we know that you've placed miracles along our path, and I pray that as we walk along and we, we, we discover those things, God, open our eyes to it. Let those things be life-changing and encourage us. And, and God, I pray that every one of us would guard our hearts, we'd keep them soft toward you, and we would truly live joyful lives that bring honor and glory so that the rest of this world would see that message of Jesus Christ displayed. Thank you.
Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.